to join me in prayer. Our glorious God, our eternal Father, truly you are deserving of praise. God, we want to give you this morning the glory due your name. Father, we bow before you, one who is categorically different from us, categorically different from all of your creation. You are the creator and the sustainer of everything else that exists. God, we think of angels around your throne covering their faces with their wings and they are holy. God, how can we approach you except that you have provided a means to deal with our sin and to make us holy, to to give us an introduction through Christ Jesus and a ready access through him. Father, we praise you for this privilege that is ours. God, we praise you for the the loving kindness that you show to us. Steadfast and loyal, faithful, dependent completely upon yourself and the covenant that you've made and not upon our performance or how likable or lovely we are. God, we are grateful for a a love that is incomparable to any other love. Father, we thank you for making your church to be a glorious church. And glorious because of you and your activity, not because of us. God, we... Add nothing to it to make it glorious. But God, you have set us apart as your own and called us your people and given us Christ himself as the head of the church. And God, we marvel at that and we, we praise you for it. We thank you for, for making us to be members of the body of Christ to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We thank you, God, for such descriptions as you make of your bride, the church. And God, we thank you that in mercy, in grace, you called us to yourself and wooed us with love and brought us into this body, this bride. God, we pray that as we meet this morning that everything said and done would be said and done with an eye toward your glory not toward our enjoyment or our satisfaction but God chiefly toward yours God we have come to worship you we've come to bless you God we pray that you would in kindness lead us help us in our weakness Sanctify the things we say and do by Christ and make them to be acceptable to you. Father, we do again pray for John as he labors in Canada and as he speaks many times over the days that he's there. God, we pray that it would be a time that's very fruitful for those who are there and that you would come near and bless them. God, May the things they hear and, and learn be useful to the churches as they go back and seek to lead the bodies 
in those different locations throughout Canada. Father, we do also lift up to you the Chavez family. God, we pray that you would help them, that you would make your will clear to them. God, like a a shepherd, lead them and let them rest, God, in knowing that you are their shepherd. God, help us to be faithful, to pray for them, and to know how to, to do so and how to speak encouraging words to them that are not in the least bit weakening, but that point them to the faithfulness of our God. Lord, we pray that your name would be lifted high, that you would be pleased in our worship this morning. We ask it again, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 134. Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord, who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Psalm 134 is the last of a group of 15 psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent or In King James, it is the songs of degree. You'll notice above many of the psalms as you look through your Bible, there are a number of inscriptions. There are some that say a psalm of David or a psalm of Moses. Um, Psalm 139 says, For the choir director, a psalm of David. Psalm 142, Maskell of David when he was in the cave. A prayer. Not all the Psalms have inscriptions. Psalm 135 and 136 do not. But in some Bibles, mine included, there are kind of like titles included that are not inscriptions. So for instance, in Psalm 134, I have greetings of night watchers. But I looked at several different Bibles and and they are different. So I looked at an ESV that said, Your name, O Lord, endures forever. That's The inscription, pardon me, that was in 135. Uh, Come, bless the Lord, Psalm 134. Or the New King James, praising the Lord in his house at night. So there are some titles, and then there are inscriptions, and they are different. And the titles have been provided by either the translator or the publisher, I'm not sure which. But the inscriptions are in the oldest Hebrew manuscripts that we have. And to the best of our knowledge, we include them as inspired text. This isn't something that was provided later, but to the best of our knowledge, David said, this is a psalm of David. So these things have been given to us from the Lord. As I said, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 all have the same inscription. Some have a little bit more information, but they all include that they are a psalm or a song of ascent. That makes them kind of unique because they are the only group of psalms that are put together sequentially and given the same title. There are a number of psalms scattered throughout the book of psalms that may have the same inscriptions, but these 15, you know, one, two, three, four, five, they're put together. They have this same inscription and there's a progression 
through these 15 Psalms. So I'm arguing that the fact that they're grouped together and that there's this progression through them is not accidental. I believe these Psalms are called Psalms of Ascent because they were sung by the Jewish people as they traveled to Jerusalem for feast days. Now, it doesn't tell us that specifically, so there are a couple of other ideas about what they may have, how they may have been used. There are some people who think that they may have been sung through the feast days um, or on other occasions. But just looking at the subject matter of these psalms, I think that it makes a lot of sense to view them as psalms that were sung as the pilgrims traveled from around the land of Israel or even from outside of Israel to Jerusalem. And if that's so then one of the reasons why they would be called a psalm of ascent is because from wherever you came, if you're going to Jerusalem, you went up. Jerusalem was at a higher altitude than the land right around it. So any journey to Jerusalem was a journey upwards. And so um, we're seeing songs of ascent. We're climbing the mountain of the Lord. We're climbing the hill to the Temple Mount. As they're... uh, um, from every direction, it was a, a pretty steep climb. For example, traveling from Jericho, which was a town that was less than 16 miles away, um, as the crow flies, not that far of a distance, but it was quite a climb. Jericho is 1,200 feet below sea level, but the Temple Mount is 2,450 feet above sea level. So there's an incline of 3,650 feet as you're traveling these 16 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem and I imagine you would especially feel that if you're walking so they're traveling up to Jerusalem because these are sung by folks who are traveling together to Jerusalem for these feast days they are often called pilgrim songs that's not a bible term it's just kind of a handy term uh, to identify them The people would travel in large groups. They're all coming together for a similar purpose. And so you can imagine as they leave their homes and as they travel, the closer they get, the more of them there are in this group. And the group just continues to grow as they get closer and various roads merge together. And here's this large assembly of folks traveling together and occasionally breaking into song as they sing through these songs of ascent, climbing the mountain up toward Jerusalem. The fact that it was a large group explains how it was possible for Jesus to be kind of misplaced by his parents as they leave Jerusalem after the feast. Luke chapter 2, verse 41 through 45 say, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there. They went up (laughs) according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan. And went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. So because there's a a large crowd and you have lots of family and friends, they just kind of assumed he's with someone else. And it's a day later before they realize he's not here. In around A.D. 60, so about 10 years before Jerusalem is destroyed, there was a Roman governor who tried to estimate how many people traveled 
into Jerusalem from outside of Judea, Judea being the region, from outside of Judea into Jerusalem for these feast days. As Rome was the power over that land, they would be very interested in knowing how many people are traveling. Um, and so this, this Roman governor tried to estimate it, and he did it by counting how many lambs were sacrificed one year on a particular Passover. And according to his, whoever was counting for him, I'm sure he wasn't doing it himself, there were 256,500 lambs sacrificed that Passover day. That's a bunch. Those lambs at the Passover had to be completely eaten that day. And so he figured about 10 people per lamb. Now it is just a guess. But if his numbers are anywhere near correct, that's two and a half million people. Judea had a population of maybe 100,000. So of those 2.5 million, perhaps 2.4 million traveling into Jerusalem from outside the land of Judea for these feast days. So I'm talking large crowds coming in to the land for these days. Now, it may not have been nearly that number of people traveling from outside of Jerusalem in Psalm 134. But still, large crowds gathering for these feasts. Psalm 134, as I mentioned, is the last of these songs. And it is, I believe, a song that they're singing as they're preparing to leave. The feast days are over. It's time to go home. And so the people cry out to the priest who are serving in the temple, perhaps the night before the day's ended and it's nighttime now, or perhaps early in the morning the sun hasn't come up yet and they're packing all their stuff to get an early start. And there's a group assigned to various duties within the temple at night and they cry out to them, bless the Lord. And the priest inside the temple hear them cry out and respond by pronouncing a blessing on the people, these pilgrims, as they prepare to go home. Well, as we look at this psalm this morning, what I'd like to try to especially point out is that when you glorify God, joy becomes a reality, even in the monotony of everyday life. When you glorify God, joy becomes a reality, even in the monotony of everyday life. There is a context within these pilgrim psalms. I've talked about the fact that, you know, that they're traveling, but even within that, that there's, there's a progression within them. So, for instance, in Psalm 120, Psalm 120 begins with, from the perspective of a people who are living outside of Israel. Verse 5 of Psalm 120 says, Woe is me! For I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Meshech was an area that's in modern day Turkey, approximately 400 miles northeast of Jerusalem, well outside of, of the borders. Kedar was located south and east of Jerusalem, also well outside of the promised land. So here are these people, well outside of Israel, a long way from the, the center of worship, that God had appointed for these Old Testament believers. A long way from the temple, a long way from the sacrifices. 
So the song opens with a sense of separation and longing for the temple, longing for the presence of God, longing for the place of worship. And there's a progression. Again, whether they've actually arrived or whether they're just anticipating it. Psalm 122, verses 1 and 2 says, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. If they're anticipating it, you can imagine as they're traveling, looking forward to being there, especially those who've been there before. They've been there, they've seen the sights, they know what it will be like. And so they anticipate. They look forward to actually being there. You may have experienced something similar in a a non-religious setting, but vacation, you go to vacation. We go to the beach and, you know, you get to a a certain place where you start, you start recognizing landmarks and you think, okay, we're almost there. And maybe the ground has gotten flatter and you maybe start seeing palm trees or smell the salt in the air. You see shorebirds. You hadn't seen any water yet, but you see shorebirds. Shorebirds, And my boys start asking if every little body of water, is that ocean? No, not yet. We're getting close. And then you finally reach a point where you see it. And you say, there it is. But there's the anticipation building as you get closer and closer. And you can imagine how for these worshipers, they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem and they anticipate being there and worshiping together with all these people who've gathered to the Temple Mount. In Psalm 132, verses 7 and 8, they move from the gates of Jerusalem to the temple itself. Let us go into His dwelling place. Let us worship at His footstool, at the Ark of the Covenant. Arise, O Lord, to Your resting place, You and the Ark of Your strength. The temple was the place where God manifested His glory. And now the Psalms describe coming to worship into His his presence in this manifested sense. So here's this geographically diverse people all gathered together around the worship of the Lord. They share a national identity. They share a religious identity. They share traditions. But more they... Worship the Lord together. They have this common ground. And then in Psalm 133 verse 1, you have this. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. What a sweet time it's been here together around the worship of God. But now the feast is over. It's time to go home. Again, the pilgrims cry out to the priests and the Levites who serve in the temple. And the priests, hearing them, respond with a blessing upon the people. Psalm 134, I think, presents two scenarios or two different groups of people and the potential disappointment that they might face as the feast has come to an end and it's back to life as usual. And both groups encourage the other group. Let's look at this together. The first scenario envisions this night shift, this graveyard shift, if you will. You can imagine the the kind of preparation, the build-up, the excitement the people who served at the temple 
would have as they get ready for all these people to come. I mean, they have normal everyday duties, but now, you know, their, their numbers are swelling exponentially. All these people are coming. All these sacrifices will be offered. They have to prepare and gear up. And so there's labor to get ready for that. And then there's the labor during the feast itself and all that goes with that. But now it's coming to an end. And you can imagine how those days might have left people emotionally drained. You know, it's been busy. It's been good. But it's been busy. And now everyone's going home. And it's time to get back to everyday kinds of sacrifices, everyday kind of worship at the Temple Mount. Not the, the, you know, the, the rush and the hubbub and the excitement of all these people gathered together. And verses 1 and 2 addresses particularly those who serve by night in the house of the Lord. So this isn't the day crew, this is the night crew. Perhaps they were up during the day because of the, the feast, the celebration. And they're participating in part of that. But now it's nighttime and it's time for them to be on duty. And so they're gathered there at the temple working. And for them and for those who served by day, there would now be the usual amount of activity. But for those who served at night, it's probably less than those who served by day. There's less people coming in, less people needing their attention, and yet still plenty to do. There were always priests and always Levites and guards on duty at the temple. Always. Um, and by the way, you may know this, but let me remind you if you've forgotten, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Right? There's the family of Levite. And within that family, there's the family of Aaron. And all the priests came from Aaron's line. And the Levites included the priests, but also included Aaron's brothers and their families. So there's priests there, there's Levites there, there's guards who serve in the temple day and night on a rotational shift. And the night shift was necessary. It wasn't accidental or, or a, an afterthought. It was important. And God's Word had provided for it. In First Chronicles chapter 9, if you want to turn there just quickly... I want to read a few verses where it is provided for. First Chronicles chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. First Chronicles 9, 24. The gatekeepers were on the four sides to the east, west, north, and south. Their relatives in their villages were to come in every seven days from time to time to be with them. For the four chief gatekeepers who were Levites were in an office of trust and were over the chambers and over the treasuries in the house of God. They spent the night around the house of God because the watch was committed to them and they were in charge of opening it morning by morning. Now some of them had charge of the utensils of service. For they counted them when they brought them in and when they took them out. Some, some of them also were appointed over the furniture and over all the utensils of the sanctuary and over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the frankincense and the spices. Some of the sons of the priest prepared the mixing of the spices. Mattathiah 
one of the Levites who was the firstborn of Shalom, the Korathite, had the responsibility over the things which were baked in pans. Some of their relatives of the sons of the Kohathites were over the showbread to prepare it every Sabbath. Now these are the singers, heads of fathers, households of the Levites, who lived in the chambers of the temple, free from other service, for they were engaged in their work day and night. This is actually just one section of the people who were engaged in the work. But day and night, you see they are assigned certain responsibilities and they labor. These lived there because they were responsible day and night. So what was occurring at the tabernacle and labor, not labor, pardon me, later at the temple was to be a copy of heavenly things, according to Hebrews 9. The worship in heaven never ends, and so the worship of the earthly sanctuary would need to mirror that. And people must be present. There were sacrifices offered night and day. And the temple was, or at least the the courtyard to some degree, was open for people to come night and day. In Luke chapter 2, do you remember there's a lady there named Anna, a prophetess? Luke 2 verses 36 and 37 say of her, She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. So there were people who came to worship night and day. And then there would be the priests there to assist them and to, to serve before the Lord, to, to keep the, um, the, the lamps lit, to keep the fire going on the altar. The fire could not go out to, to offer the sacrifice. In verse 1, the New American Standard speaks of those who serve by night. Many other translations have the word stand by night. And it's a more literal translation. They are serving as they stand but they are standing. The Hebrew word for stand, this translated stand here, is used consistently in Scripture to speak of the duty performed by those who served in the temple. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 8, at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord to stand before the Lord to serve Him and to bless in His name until this day. They're to stand and serve Him. In Deuteronomy 18, 7. Then he shall serve in the name of the Lord his God like all his fellow Levites who stand there before the Lord. In 2 Chronicles 29, 11, Hezekiah speaks to the priests and Levites encouraging them much as the pilgrims are encouraging them in Psalm 134. And Hezekiah says, My sons, do not be negligent now. For the Lord has chosen you to stand before Him, to minister to Him, and to be His ministers and to burn incense. So to stand before the Lord was to serve. But again, they were literally standing. If you remember the, uh, the articles of furniture that are in the temple, you don't find in the list chairs or couches. There's nowhere to sit down because there's always something to do. They're active in their service. In fact, they have to be. Because, again, the work is not completed until Christ Jesus comes. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 13 say, Every priest stands daily ministering 
and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. The priests, the Levites who served in the tabernacle and later in the temple, they stand because there's work to be done. Christ Jesus has finished the work and he sits down. Well, three quick things about this before we move on. One, any routine can become monotonous, can be done haphazardly, and can be taken for granted. Here are people who are privileged to serve the Lord in the tabernacle or in the temple. God selects them for this work. No one else can do it. You don't, get to, you don't go to career day in high school or college and say, here's what I want to be when I grow up. You're either born into the family of Levi or into the line of Aaron, or you're not. And that's it. They serve in a privileged position. And yet even that could be done in a haphazard way if they're not careful. Anything routine can become monotonous. What once was exciting can not only become mundane, but it can feel especially mundane after feast days. The, the labor that they do is the same labor year-round. There are days when it's perhaps more exciting and days when it's less exciting. But it's the same labor. During the feast days, you've got to think it's more exciting because there's all these people here and there's the energy of the crowd. And we pray the blessing of God. But then they all go home. And what was just normal duty now, with the emotional letdown, there's the temptation to really coast. You might feel it if you are an empty nester. As our family has gotten larger, when the holidays come, Christmas comes, Everyone packs into the house. It's noisy. It's a mess. Then they go home. And in one sense, there's kind of the... <laughs> it's quiet again. Kind of, sort of. I mean, not completely, right? Uh, but there's also kind of a, a down. Like, it's empty again. Kind of, sort of. <laughs> And so you, you might understand kind of what I'm talking about. The priests might feel that way as well. You know, you go from the excitement of these celebration days to almost the relief that we can slow down a little bit and relax because there's not the, the continual activity in the same sense that there was when all of these people have gathered here together and there's all these extra sacrifices to make. But with that then becomes the danger of coasting. And doing something sacred on autopilot. That temptation is heightened yet again because this is the night crew. This is the night watch. And while their job is important and it's necessary, it's just not the same as daytime work, is it? I mean, there's the natural rhythms of our bodies and all of that. It's not the same. 
There's not as many people who are going to show up at night as there are during the daytime. There's not as many demands upon your time. When I was in college, I worked a summer for Benchcraft, loading trucks and um, railroad cars in their warehouse. It was the kind of job that made you ready for school to start back. <laughs> it was hot and uh, constantly moving on concrete. and It was, it was long days. The very last, the next to last day before my job was over and I'm going back to school, they had several people call in for whatever reason and they weren't going to be there that night. And I heard that and I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to get through a day early. And so I volunteered to work another shift through the night just so I didn't have to go in the next day. I'm not sure if that was the best idea or not. It was a long day, but I did. I did notice though, Things were a lot more relaxed at night than they were during the daytime. This may not be true everywhere, but it was true there. I mean, there was still stuff to do. There was plenty of furniture to load. There was still a manager, but it still wasn't the same. All the, the people who worked in the office were at home. They weren't walking out on the floor every now and then and looking to see what's happening or what wasn't happening. The manager knew that too. So he wasn't looking to see if you know someone's looking at him before he turned and looked at you and... It was just more relaxed. I had a friend in high school who worked for the local New Albany AM station as a DJ. And he occasionally had to work through the night. Now, I didn't listen to the AM station in New Albany through the night. But he told me there were times when, I mean, there's nobody in that building but him. There were times when he fell asleep and it was dead air. And obviously somebody in New Albany was listening because they would start calling him to wake him up and tell him to play something. Things are just different at night than they are during the daytime. And so here's the temptation, not only of kind of the letdown, natural letdown of whew, we're not as busy as we were during these feast days, as wonderful as they were. But then there's also the, the nighttime aspect. And so all of that creates a situation in which it would be easy to do holy things on autopilot in a way that didn't really please the Lord, in a way that didn't give a wholehearted service to a God who deserves a wholehearted service. And so the psalm presents this scenario where the pilgrims are getting ready to leave. They see the lights around the temple and they cry out. Whether it's one person or whether it's together, they cry out. I don't know, but they cry out. Verses 1 and 2. Behold. Look. Hey you. Behold. Bless the Lord. All servants of the Lord who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary. And bless the Lord. In verse 1 and again in verse 2. These pilgrims cry out, bless the Lord. But what does it mean to bless the Lord? When we bless somebody, unless you're being kind of nasty southern, when we bless somebody, we're asking for divine favor to come and be conferred to them. We're in a sense asking God to, to come and give them something that we can't give them. But how do we bless the Lord? 
Are we asking God to come near and confer divine favor upon himself? Well, that doesn't make any sense. And we cannot confer anything upon God. We can't benefit him. We can't add anything to him. We can't take anything away from him. We can't sanctify him and set him apart in the sense of adding something to his holiness. Making him more holy than he already is. That's nonsense. And yet the passage calls upon those who serve by night, and and also in verse 1, all servants of the Lord, bless the Lord. So how do you do that? We bless the Lord by attributing words to Him that give Him the honor He is due. We say true and good things about Him. We bless Him by praising Him, by hallowing His name, by glorifying Him. We, we bless Him by, by praising Him with thanksgiving. I think we see something of an example of this in Psalm 103. Psalm 103 begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. And then what does the psalmist do? He begins listing benefits. Here's how the Lord has blessed me. And then he goes to the character of God. God, you're this way. He says true and good things about the Lord, ascribing glory to the Lord. And that is what the pilgrims are calling these priests and Levites and and workers in the night of the temple. Here's what they're calling them to do. Bless God. And so as they do that, In a sense, what they're doing is calling them to worship. They're there to worship. But the pilgrims call them to worship. And so it's it's a call to a wholehearted, alert, heartfelt, grateful worship as opposed to going through the motions in some ritual. If you're job is mixing spices and you've mixed spices all night long for the last however many years you would think you know you can you can throw those spices together pretty quick and not think about anything hardly you can be thinking about anything but the pilgrims are calling them to worship the lord as they go about their responsibilities second scenario Verse 3. In verse 3, the pilgrims are now leaving. Having come from all over. They've traveled to this special place on this special occasion. The priests and the Levites live in Jerusalem. They serve in and around the temple day and night. They get to stay there. The pilgrims are going home. Back to whatever problems existed, back to foreign lands, going away from the temple, going away from the feast days, going back to reality. And as they travel, this large group would gradually become smaller and smaller as they get closer to home. You know, you take this road to your house and I take this road to mine. And so they become smaller and smaller. And what's been this huge crowd and the camaraderie of this crowd, that goes away also. And it'd be the temptation to despair. Perhaps you've felt something like that at times. Maybe there are times when God seems to come particularly near to you and you relish those times and then for whatever reason that comes to an end 
And you long for it. And maybe you despair because it's not there now like it was before. Or maybe you've gone to a, a conference of believers. I went, to, I can't remember now if it was last year or two years ago, to the G3 conference. And there were, there were good things and, and not as good things. Not bad things. Just, But anyway, it was pretty wonderful to see thousands of people gathered together worshiping God. Singing praises to God. That's an awesome sight. Then you leave, right? You leave that conference environment where you have very little responsibilities and you're listening to good preaching and you're singing with all these other people who are singing and you go back to reality, to responsibilities, to bills to be paid, and all those sorts of things. For, the, for anyone in that kind of scenario, and I think especially the people in Old Testament times, there would be the temptation to think that as you're leaving Jerusalem and going back to home, you're leaving God behind. And leaving the favor of God behind. God has been favorable to us in this place. And here in Old Testament times, Jerusalem is the place where you come to offer sacrifices. If you lived in Meshech, you couldn't offer sacrifices in Meshech. So here's a place of God's peculiar presence and blessing. We've been blessed here. Now we're leaving. And as they leave, roused by the cry from the pilgrims to bless the Lord, the priest respond in verse 3. May the Lord bless you from Zion. He who made heaven and earth. Now again, we see that word bless. In verses 1 and 2, it was a call for the people who served by night to bless the Lord. But here the priests are calling God to bless the people. What does that mean? The Bible does use the word bless in various ways. The Lord has said to bless us when He confers grace upon us or when He speaks well of us or when He bestows some benefit or advantage to us. Then we are said to be blessed. So to Adam and Eve... In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God commanded them and in the commanding them, there was blessing. To obey the Lord was blessing. He blessed them, giving them these positive commands. God is said to bless a person or an object when He sanctifies it by setting it apart to Himself or for some holy purpose. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because He rested from all His work which God had created and made. Here's a day different from the other six days. And by separating it from those other six days, God blessed it and sanctified it. God has blessed His people by making them His people and by setting them apart to Himself. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here are a blessed people. The priest often 
pronounced blessings and a, a familiar one that they often pronounce to the people is found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. You may be familiar with it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. As the priests respond in Psalm 134, they call upon the Lord who made heaven and earth. Here is a subtle reminder to the people who are returning home, you don't serve a local deity. God is not confined to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a place of His special presence and blessing, but He's not confined to Jerusalem. And you don't leave God just because you leave Jerusalem. He made heaven and earth. He made everything it contains. Wherever you're going to home, He's there. The priests do pronounce this blessing from Zion. Zion, the place of God's blessing. It's a place where the sacrifices occurred. It's a place where forgiveness is pronounced. God has accepted the sacrifice as a soothing aroma. Your sin has been propitiated for. You're forgiven. But they don't leave the blessing of forgiveness back in Jerusalem when they leave there. Have you ever... I rarely mention TV shows or movies, but I'm going to right now. Have you ever seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? If you haven't, don't go watch it necessarily. But in this movie, Indiana Jones is on this journey to find this cup or goblet that's supposed to have been used by Christ. And it promises the fountain of youth. If you drink it, you have immortality. But when he finds it, he discovers that the only way you can have that immortality is to keep this cup in this cave where it's stored. And if you leave the cave, you lose the immortality. The saints leaving Jerusalem don't leave the blessing behind. They don't have to stay in Jerusalem to stay in the blessing. God has pronounced forgiveness upon them. But it's a forgiveness they keep as they go home. It's a forgiveness that you keep, Christian, wherever you go. It's not something that's, that's localized to one spot or to a specific date. It's something that is ongoing and enduring. It's a forgiveness that has been promised by the maker of heaven and earth. You may leave behind the excitement of the feast, but you don't leave behind God or the reason to worship Him. So we have those serving the Lord in the temple at night. They serve in a privileged position, yet that could become tedious. Routine. And we have the pilgrims leaving Jerusalem in the celebration of the feast to go back home, back to everyday problems, that exists back to the normal labors of life, back to ordinary. But the pilgrims encourage the priest, and the priest encouraged the, the, the pilgrims, and they both point each other toward the Lord. And they remind each other, and I hope they remind us, that God is worthy to be glorified in the tedium of ordinary life. And that's a place of great joy. 
Where do the pilgrims point the priest? To the Lord. Bless the Lord. Twice. Bless the Lord. Lift your hands up toward the sanctuary. Toward the place where God dwells. The holy place. And with lifting your hands up, lift your heart. And worship Him. Don't go through the motions. Serve the Lord with gladness. And where do the priests point the pilgrims? To the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. He who made heaven and earth. That's the one who blesses you. The encouragement should move both of them to worship, to glorify God. And as we worship God, seeing and living life with a humble acknowledgement of His rule, that is a place of great joy. Perhaps it's not the excitement of the feast. But it is joy nonetheless. Sometimes people come here with expectations. I guess we all come with certain expectations. Sometimes we come with unrealistic expectations. Or maybe you come and you find that what you should have done all along and suspected, but we really are imperfect. And the thrill that comes with something new goes away. It's back to life. It's ordinary. Sometimes it's tedious. It does not mean that God does not bless or that He is not blessing. It's just that what was exciting before has now become normal. We adjust. And you can always be on the hunt for the extraordinary or you can glorify God in the ordinary. There are those who, like the the priest in verse 1, in the night watch, serve in the shadows. What they do is important. It's necessary. And yet often there's little encouragement. Maybe their labors are unrecognized. And it would be easy to despair and be tempted to give up. Why bother? And if you are laboring for man's applause, then yeah, you may as well give up, right? But if you're laboring for God, then no, He sees. He knows. And He remembers. Even if no one else sees. So bless the Lord. Lift your hands toward the sanctuary. Bless the Lord. These pilgrims, as they prepare to go back home, they may have been tempted to think if only we lived in Jerusalem, we could do this every day. Wouldn't this be great? People who live in Jerusalem sure are blessed. You may be tempted to think, if only, if only my circumstances were different. 
If only I lived in this place or that place. Or if only, you know, I, I like the priest could serve in more of a full-time ministry. Or, or I had a different job than the job I've got. Or if only my spouse was this way. Or my kids were this way. Or if only, if only, if only. You know, there are some circumstances that are wrong and should be changed. If you have the power to change them. But there are some that are just what God has given you. And you can complain about them or you can glorify God in them. If you are where God has put you, then which do you think you should do? You may think, yeah, yeah, but you don't know my circumstances. You know, I'm different. Special case, right? I don't know your circumstances. But we do know the God who's in charge of all circumstances, don't we? We know the God who rules over everything. Who's worthy to be glorified even in your circumstances. Or you may long for excitement. <laughs> Most people, I think, when they're younger, think life will be one way and you grow up. And for most of us, it's not that way, right? It's different. Not necessarily bad, but it's different. It's not the thrilling adventure from one thing to the next that you may dream about when you're younger. A lot of life is boring. <laughs> a lot of life is doing the chores, you know. It's doing the things that just have to be done that no one wants to do. A lot of life is just getting up and doing the things that you're supposed to do because that's what you're supposed to do. And you do it to the glory of God. Maybe you just had the wrong definition of adventure. God has put you on the path of great adventure. It's the path of following Him in obedience through the ups and downs He has ordained and through doing the boring very well unto Him. You can sulk. You can quibble. You can rebel and go chase something else that the world promises is very adventurous. Or you can set your heart to glorify God and to pursue Him. Only one of those is worthy of Him. And only one of those will really be satisfying to you. For all of us, there is the temptation in the routine to stop thinking, to stop pushing, to be lazy, to be complacent, to coast. We've gathered here this morning. And if you've been here more than about two weeks or two times, you know when to stand up and when to sit down, right? You can do this on autopilot. You don't have to think. You can daydream through this entire time and kind of you know, pay attention momentarily here and there to wonder, are we about done yet? But you don't have to really be engaged with your heart. That takes some effort. But we serve a God who's worthy of the effort. We serve a God who deserves to be glorified. And the saints from way back here in Psalm 134 cry out to us as well, bless the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary. Bless the Lord. We have come to worship the Lord who made heaven 
and earth. Are you on autopilot this morning? Or is your heart engaged? Have you come to just endure and get through it? Or have you come to bless the Lord? You know, the truth is, if spiritually you're on autopilot this morning, you were probably on autopilot before you got here. This whole, you know, this past week, it's a good possibility you've been on autopilot all along because there's nothing magical that occurs when you walk through the doors. And if you don't want to be on autopilot here, then engage yourself through the week and pursue the Lord and then come and pursue Him together with us when we gather. In the kindness of God, God gave the pilgrims to the priest and He gave the priest to the pilgrims to encourage one another. Not with false encouragement or with empty words, but by pointing each other to the Lord. Do you not think that the priest, hearing the pilgrims cry out to them as they load up and get ready to go home, stands a little taller as they stand before the Lord? Are they not a little bit more diligent? Are their hearts not soaring a bit more toward the Lord in response to the call from these pilgrims? And the pilgrims, are their hearts not encouraged by the reminder, the knowledge that God is not limited to Zion? And while God is blessed in Zion, the blessing goes with them. Are their hearts not stirred to praise Him, knowing that they serve the God who made heaven and earth? And yes, He's the God in Jerusalem, but He's also the God in Meshach or Kedar or wherever you live. What if the pilgrims had not said anything? What if the priest hadn't answered? But they did. And they were both encouraged by the other. And then I would ask you to remember that God has placed us in a body And one of the reasons He's put you in a body is that we might encourage one another. Hebrews 10.25 And there are other passages, but here's one that you know, I'm sure. Many of you know. Not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another. Why, Why have we come together? We've come to bless the Lord, certainly. But we've also come to encourage one another. And so we come considering our brothers and sisters around us, even as we bless the Lord. We come to urge one another on. We come to point our brothers and sisters to the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and to remind them not to forget any of His benefits. And don't you dare coast. But give Him a heartfelt, wholehearted devotion because He's worthy of it. And we expect to get the same kind of encouragement back. Don't you coast either. Don't you coast, but you chase him, you pursue him, and you give him the glory to his name. If these Old Testament saints were encouraged as they journeyed home by the knowledge that God is not confined to Zion, but his blessing went with them, how much more should you be encouraged, you who are in Christ Jesus? Zion is no longer a geographical location. The church of the living God is the new Zion, right? Not only do you not have to worry about leaving God at Zion, but you are Zion. We are Zion. We are His dwelling place, the temple of God. 
In Psalm 134, the blessing comes from Zion because that's where the sacrifices were performed. But the sacrifices were shadows. They didn't actually forgive any sins. They looked forward to the day when sins would be forgiven. But brothers and sisters, sins have now been forgiven. For all who are in Christ Jesus, sins have been put away. And so we come here or we leave here with the knowledge of sins actually forgiven and consciences cleansed by the blood of Jesus. What blessings are ours? We have been made partakers of the divine nature. We have been adopted into the family of God. Our blessings are so great. We have every reason to be encouraged and not discouraged. So pick up the pace and be encouraged to walk with the living God today and every day. Bless the Lord. Lift your hands up to the sanctuary. Glorify your king. Sinner, you don't have to go to Israel. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go hunt down a priest. You don't have to carry an animal to him. You just run to Jesus. You plead with him, knowing that his blood is sufficient to cover your sin and that he's able to give you life from the dead. Repent and believe him. For all of us in Christ Jesus, the answer to our dissatisfaction with life is an overwhelming satisfaction in Him. And this goes hand in hand with blessing Him. If we are blessing Him, saying good things about Him, then we need to inform our minds about what those good things are. It's not just the, the, you know, the random thoughts that we have or even the good thoughts that we have. They're polluted by the world and, and our own vain imaginations. But it's looking into the Scripture to see what God says about Himself and then bringing that back to Him. And our own hearts encouraged by the, the things that Scripture says, our hearts will be satisfied in Him. We have to fill ourselves up with Him. And we will be made glad. Finally, God has commanded us and God is worthy to be blessed and glorified in every aspect of our existence, including the humdrum of ordinary life. We need to beware the temptation that says we would glorify Him in the excitement. We would glorify Him and bless Him in the extraordinary when we will not bless Him in the ordinary. You have an extraordinary God. Praise Him for the privilege of living an ordinary life. Pursue Him with a wholehearted devotion. Glorify Him. Bless Him. Lift your hands toward the sanctuary. And know that His blessing follows you wherever you go. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Now may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.